We're doing an early one today. We have our little coffees. I know. It's not normally our beverage of choice while recording this. No. We have vented some of our more emotional feelings beforehand. Just get it out of the way. Um, which I think you'll find interesting based on the last thing we just talked about. We're just talking about religion. And I won't say it out loud here because I find it probably not very constructive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it will play a factor in my in my person this week. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. Mm-hmm. Mine, I don't think quite ties to current events in any other way than like people are problematic oh. in the broadest possible sense. That's our theme overall. That should be our subtitle <laughs> at this point. It's like, what would be the missing history? Like big points are... Um, Child brides, <laughs> dead parents, awesome dads, being problematic. They're and awesome dads, like a, a subcategory of the parents. Mm-hmm. If they're alive, odds are they're awesome. And oh boy, how far we've come! I don't know. Should we talk about current events? Because this is going to come out so late. I mean, yeah. It, For it you in the future, Michael and Katie on this recording just found out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died a couple days ago. Well, we didn't find out right now, but like we're processing it together for the first time. So we've just talked about that a little bit, and it was great. But um, for you in the future, hope you're doing okay. <laughs> hope you're it's, probably not, so we're not here for trash. you. I mean, you know, just gotta breathe. Just be nice to yourself. Be nice to other people. That's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, I think that feels like a good place to leave it. I imagine we'll probably end up doing, if not like an RBG episode in the near future, like a women in the courts episode just because like Maybe i feel like is it the og the sandra day yeah i was really I, she's a hoot and a half yeah i really don't know that much about her so i would be really excited to do something like that i have a poster of rbg that i got as a gift i haven't yet to put it up but now it needs a place of honor um mm-hmm. my home just sucks it just sucks yeah it really does i mean yeah i mean one of the interesting things about being here in the dc theater community is she was like such a big theater fan yeah um that pretty much specifically loved opera girlfriend loves some opera was in one of the washington national operas a couple of years ago in like a non-speaking role Mm -hmm. it's fun because like basically everyone has their rbg story some of them better than others like one of the theaters here was doing a show and she invited the whole company to like sit in on oral arguments in the supreme court which is like super cool. Um, another time, like one of my friends um, was like doing a walkthrough with her security detail um, before like a talk back she was going to participate in. Um, and one of the security officers asked like, and, you know, how public is this event? Has it been publicized? And my friend like looked at him and was like, of course it's been publicized. It's a public event at a theater. I need you to watch out for her. And, like take care of her. Because she is precious cargo. I think, and my story, which is like low on the list, is I was running a show at the Kennedy Center. Um, and it involved at one point me like taking an actor out into the lobby to enter through the back of the house. And there was one day we did that, and you see her in her security detail like walk through the lobby, having just come from the opera. And the actor I was with, who wasn't a DC local, like clocked it, had, didn't recognize her at first go, so kept going, but then like stopped halfway up the stairs looked back and like freaked out because it was rbg and also was like super late for his entrance 
So I was like looking and being like, this is so cool. This is so cool. And also like, you need to go. You need to go because you're going to miss your entrance. Just scream that you love her and run. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wish. I regret not doing that now. She felt it. I'm sure. If you haven't seen RBG yet, I highly recommend it. I have not. I can't watch it right now, but I'm glad I did watch it beforehand. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite good from a couple of years ago. And it's very like, it's, it's the whole woman in a good way. It's, it's. It's just lovingly done and uh, available online right now, I think. So easy to uh, understand her contributions in a mm-hmm. holistic way. I think the thing that people don't talk enough about is she clearly helped women with her court cases and her judiciary life. She clearly did. It's it's obvious, and I hope <laughs> to most people, that women are better off because she was on the Supreme Court. But I don't think it's as clear how much better off men are as well. And it's because of the cases she took to show that discrimination against women is, is discrimination discrimination against men. Mm-hmm. And pigeonholing one sex inevitably pigeonholes the other. And when you do that, all of the marginal people, and most people think they exist in a margin, are at a disadvantage. So to think that she only fought for women, I think, is is an iceberg and is the clear obvious and celebrated thing but her cause that cause not just hers but like that cause affects all people and that's the goal of the country i think is to remember that when you disproportionately affect one person in the negative it affects all people in the negative you have to fight for the people with the least in order for the people around them and with yeah it's just it's everybody so yeah that is what feminism is for all of you in case you weren't aware yeah i think that's a (laughs) maybe point six for missing history is like also a good tie into my person oh man we're gonna have a little yeah oh this is this is good like i Mm -hmm. love i love these intros when you're just like when this all ties in um Okay, but maybe that's just like we're doing very broad themes. <laughs> we're just so like everything can kind of get to covered. other people. Be good to other people, equality. Uh, talk to other humans like they're humans. Which you think like wouldn't be such a radical, <laughs> wouldn't be so so radical of an idea, but here we are on episode whatever this is, mm-hmm. <laughs> reminding ourselves that it is in fact a radical notion, mm-hmm. a humanist notion. Cool. Should we get started? Yeah, I think you get to go first this week. Okay. I'm Michael. And I'm Katie. Welcome to Missing History, a podcast where each episode we discover the people absent from history class. Spoilers, they're usually female identifying. We uncover their stories, investigate their impact, and discuss how they've been ignored or sidelined. Today's episode contains strong language and references to violence and sexual assault. Okay, you ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to do... Uh, my bago, M-A-I-B-H-A-G-O, two words. But first, we're going to talk about Sikhism. Do you know about Sikhism as a religion? I have to say my only reference point is like a 10th grade world religions class. So it has been a Mine too. Set. Yeah. Uh, 12th grade world religions, but mm-hmm. world religions. And I was like, oh, 
And when I was getting taught world religions, I'm not sure what year that was for you, but for me, it was hot on the heels of um, a certain cataclysmic event where uh, people overtook some planes and flew them into buildings. And because of the ethnicity of those people, a lot of people that looked like them were disproportionately affected. Um especially because in Sikhism, one of the tenets of the faith is that you must not cut your hair and wear a turban. So it is very easy to see a Sikh person, uh, particularly a male Sikh person, and to therefore judge them and assume things about them that are incorrect. Um, in fact, one of the first hate crimes after 9-11 was against a Sikh man because of how he looked. And oh, to be clear... That. The faith of the people that did that thing was also not in the teaching of Islam as we know it, or should be. Um, it was a radicalized, niche piece of a faith that is otherwise peaceful and beautiful. So please learn about all religions and be curious about everything. Um, but yes, uh, very often targeted as a, as a hate crime. And a hate crime, in my view, is a way to process grief in a destructive way. So a lot of Americans were feeling a certain way and decided to take it out on the most obvious stereotypical solution. Uh, and the, this community suffered for it. But we're actually going to live, um, we're going to go farther back into like a cultural folklore story within the Sikh community. Um, so Sikhism is a faith that is from the Punjab region of India and Pakistan. It's that northern border uh, mm -hmm. And it's sort of where there's constant kind of turmoil along that border because Pakistan, as you know, is a usually Muslim country. India is a Hindu country. There is always conflict. There has always been conflict since they decided that that was a barrier to have. That's why Pakistan exists the way it does. There's been constant warfare since they both existed for religious purposes. Um, we could go into that. But then you have Sikhism crop up in the 15th century. And it grows out of the teachings of Guru Nanak, who is the first guru born 1469 to 1539. And there are nine gurus that follow him. So there's 10. Uh, the 10th is Guru Gobind Singh. And after the 10th guru, it sort of cements the religion into this uh, this teaching. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm indicating a box with my hands, but it, it we'll talk about what they believe. And then you tell me if it's bad or not. But um. Uh, guru means teacher, guide, expert, master, but it's definitely like of the most uh, esteem. They help mold the values of the language of the religion and they are held in high esteem <clears throat> within the faith. Guru Nanak started teaching of a monotheistic religion. Um, there is one supreme being, the creator, that the guru is able to understand and therefore communicate to the followers and not in a, it's a little different where known by grace through the guru, you know, there's a very, there's a lot of Christian vibes within Sikhism. I find interesting. Um, one supreme being the creator without fear and devoid of enmity, immortal, never incarnated self-existent. Also, okay. what I think you'll find interesting is genderless. Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yep. From the 15th century. The creator. There is no gender. Uh, it's also a little bit more amorphous than like, it is a personification of God. It is, nope, it is God. God means this. It is without form in an interesting way. 
Mm-hmm. And then it is through the guru that the grace and understanding of that God comes out. Selfless service. I'm just going to hit the high points of it. Um, ego and <clears throat> selfish selfishness are the root of evil and therefore must be overcome through selfless service and giving of others, giving to others, promoting uh, equality among all people. The lack of self brings you into that higher state of understanding with your God, if that makes sense. Oh, that's interesting. So it's sort of, it's like a little bit similar to Buddhism in the sense of like the self being sort of the center of those evils, but rather than the solution to that is to focus inward, the solution is to focus inward both but with like a there is a focus on others there is a focus on meditation and understanding of self but the root of evil impulses um is the ego and like action is used um Mm -hmm. activity is used to sort of get out of that uh by constantly engaging with other people you are reminded of what is divine is my is my interpretation of it to be clear, I'm not quoting that from scripture or anything. Um, mm-hmm. Service in Sikhism takes three forms. Physical service, mental service, and material service. Honest work. Uh, concept of sharing is encouraged within the teachings and giving to the community and creating community. Sikhism does not differentiate obligations by gender within their religion. God has no gender. Scripture does not discriminate against women or bar them from any roles within the faith. And women in Sikhism have been in positions of leadership, including leading wars and issued orders and issuing orders. Uh, I don't believe there was ever a female guru, it should be noted. Mm-hmm. Um, but within a Sikh community, that is the prevailing tradition. Now, has that been maybe adjusted pending the patriarchal views of certain societies? I'm sure. Because that's a really hard pill to swallow. But this is what... This is what my research found. But it, it's it's interesting, like, unlike some of the Christian things where, like, you write that, like, that works its way into scripture and tradition in, like, mm-hmm. a really solidified way. It seems like this, at least on the scriptural level, is yeah. a bit more gender neutral. It's attempting to be. And um, you'll see that in the person I talk about. So what I find interesting, yeah, I just find, yeah. I find it so interesting with gender dynamics, especially in older times like this, where it's a pretty radical feeling to be like in the 15th century that we're all equal. Women have an equal role in the state of things as men do um, at the council of deciding what the community does. Because fundamentally at this time with gender dynamics being what they were, women had babies tended to the home. Men did outside the home things. Um, And the second you have a division of labor like that, and we're not all doing the same thing, it quickly, the value system can shift based on your perspective. So it's, it takes a lot of work to be like, even though you're doing something different than I am, than we are men to women, it is still equal value. You know, it doesn't mean we devalue it because we're not doing it. And that's, I think the challenge of modern Western society. It's like, well, we're not doing it. So it doesn't matter. Or it matters less, you know, Mm -hmm. it matters, but not in the way that my stuff matters, you know, egotism. Um, anyway, so moving on, (laughs) I hate it. I hate it so much. Okay. So in India, we have the Mughal Mughal empire. Mughal? Mughal? Is it just Mughal? I'm sorry. The H makes me confused because I'm stupid. Mughal, the Mughal empire, big old empire. Do you know about them? They're Only in very too. broad, Me broad too. strokes. I'm not going to get into it right now because it's a lot. It's like, I mean, 
they deserve their due and this isn't about them. So it's not going to be here. So they're, they're just raging in India. <laughs> they're, they're doing their thing. It's, we are now going to move towards like the 16th century. Um, Sikhism has grown as you can predict, maybe uh, their vibe doesn't really go down well with Islam, uh, hardcore Islam people or hardcore, hardcore Hindu people. So now we have, a, we have a third flavor in the mix that's a little bit of a blend of everything and takes a little Buddhism down. And so in any kind of strict religious life, there are the radical people that decide that what, my way or the highway and basically it ends with a lot of killing. So love that. The Mughal Empire is one of uh, Hindu faith and they are constantly sort of, they're, they're the people in charge. So quite dominant, huge, ride elephants into battle, redefine warfare, huge empire at this time, huge power, um, and trying to, and like all empires, trying to expand. And when you expand, you have to dominate. And when you dominate, it's usually on religious purposes and you're doing it for a greater good and whatever you decide to tell yourself. Um, they also, you know, influence literature and the arts and the culture of the time. But yeah, so there are some good leaders of the Mughal Empire that try to assimilate people in and say that your way is good and like a multicultural empire is the way forward. And then there's some, like all empires, when you have to do it based on lineage, you have a couple grandkids later, he's maybe not as down because he's a little more religiously uh, extreme. So those those relationships erode. Um Mm-hmm. But by the time we're at my Bago's life, uh, there is not a really peaceful understanding between the Sikhs and the Mughal Empire. And the particular emperor, uh, Arun, oh, I don't even know how to say his name, A-U-R-A-N-G-Z-E-B, Aurangzeb. I'm going to say it that way, Aurangzeb, and I apologize if it's not correct, Um not not particularly warm and friendly. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, pretty hostile. Um, the Sikhs were not interested in the caste system seen in Hinduism. Uh, they were also not going to roll back the rights of their women to suit a Hindu or a Mughal understanding of the power structure. Mm-hmm. So, because they weren't able to um, allow, yeah. Mughals weren't down with it. They didn't like it. It didn't they didn't make sense to them. So then there's friction and then there's fighting. And the way that fighting manifested is the guru at the time would be moving around and preaching to his fellow Sikhs and maintaining his community. And the Mughals would be like following him and trying to attack him and trying to like subvert him, kill his children so there weren't more gurus and all of this stuff. Um, subjugate and dominate and all this stuff. It wasn't like there was a Sikh location of like, this is where they all live and we can just kill that town. Uh, it was a community. It was a faith over stretching many areas. So anyway, they did their best. Um, my Bago is born in Jabal Kalan, which is in the Punjab area. Uh, she, her, she is in a Sikh family. So she has these teachings from a young age and is a, by all accounts, a devotee of the religion, like fully subscribes to it, fully understands it. Um, very much devoted. And um, as she's growing up, there's this constant confrontation between the guru and the emperor. And uh, previous guru had been murdered and 
now he is on the move and like very nomadic existence for the safety of himself and his family. Um, as he moves around, he has soldiers with him uh, in case battle occurs at any time. And nonstop warfare on the guru, as tough as it was. So then, okay, so as you're going around, you're going to find a fortress and then uh, kind of gear up and, and be ready for a siege if possible. So the, the existence of some of these soldiers for his, um, for his army were not great at times because you'd be at the mercy of if the Mughals are coming to you and you have to like barricade yourself in, you kind of, if you've ever seen Game of Thrones, they talk about a lot where like being prepared for a siege is, is hard work and you have to like make sure mm -hmm. you have all the food and you have a water supply and are all the people like it's a mental thing as much of a physical thing. So it became very tough over time that the soldiers would defect or, or have to leave for name a reason. So there's a particular moment where 40 of them from the region that my Baga was from, 40 of these soldiers were like, we can't do it anymore. We resign. We, we, we do not wish to follow this guru anymore, which is like huge personal religious issue, right? That's a, that's mm -hmm. a huge thing to say. And it was all very official. And they had to like sign off that they had to tell him they were leaving him and they had to sign their names on it. So there's like a shame element. There's a sacrifice element, like your, your honor, all of those things. And they leave. Um, as they leave, my Bago is like, you did what? You, I'm sorry, you did what? And she does not care for it. So she hears about it and she's like, uh, no, you didn't. You will not. No, we are doing what is right. We are doing what is good. We are the faith of um, equality and understanding. And part of our teaching as well is to defend those who cannot defend themselves. So like you just left our ruler or our, our, our religious beacon to defend himself and you, you gave up one of the core tenets of our religion. Yeah, you know, just she was might not go over super well. <laughs> she was not content about it. Um, so the legend goes, I, I didn't find this in another place. I, I wish I had found another account of this. So some of these details might be, um, manufactured, but she allegedly rides to a nearby city that she knows the 40 deserters are heading towards as they are on their way home. And she gets the women to take up arms in their place. And she's like, we're all going to go fight for them since they can't. Okay. I'm over this. I'm sick of it. Um, and then we can tell them to stay and look after the kids or they can fight with us. Um, so there's like a, a legend of like, she shamed them so bad that they turned back around and she went with them that time. Mm -hmm. The women didn't end up going as far as I could tell. But uh, there's also like on their way, she like stopped at different villages where they would stop. And she's like, do not provide them any hospitality. They deserted their guru. You need to, you know, she like Liz Estrada did. Um, <laughs> she's like, I'm going to get the women to help me out. But mm -hmm. legend goes, by all accounts, she shamed them and uh, reminded them of their duty. And she rode with them back to the guru's uh, side. So, as they are riding back, the Mughals show up at the Guru, or they're on their way. And so, a conflict occurs. And by all accounts, there's only 41 of this little band of, of deserters heading back to reclaim their honor. And the Mughals had 10,000 soldiers on elephants and horses and everything. So, 
they're outnumbered, but it's probably not that much. Let's all call yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but it's like a 300 scenario, you know, like, oh, the vast odds. Um, and it's like, we're, we're setting this up. So just so you know, this is yeah. a big deal. So anyway, they they understand that the Mughals are going towards the Guru. This little band of 40 is like, we can do something to help distract or detain or slow down this impending assault because the guru's army is not particularly like 10,000 at this point either. So it's two small groups against one big group. So her and her little band decide to do a couple things. Um, They position themselves by a reservoir, which is a source of water. So they know that the Mughals will try to utilize it. So if they defend it, it's just less water for the advancing army to receive. Mm-hmm. They also, um, allegedly, I'm going to say this with all of these details because I, I couldn't find them replicated in other sources, but um, lay lay fabric over uh, some of the bushes in the area to kind of look like a settlement that's off the, that's not where the real settlement is to kind of make people think like, this is where the guru is. So you can distract and, and uh, lose valuable time and resources attacking mm-hmm. bushes with tents on them. A little um, bit of psychological warfare mm-hmm. situation. And then they're all on horseback, these 40 riders. So when conflict actually happens, they kick up so much dust that the guru who's um, seeing this 10,000 feet, he's, he's trying to retreat and like get out of there to not have this kind of conflict. So he sees them intercept them, which causes him alert and therefore he uh, can help them. So the way the conflict occurs is like they start stabbing the tents. Uh, her and her 40 men go in there just like killing however best they can. She is by all accounts leading them, um, which is huge because you imagine a Mughal Empire, this woman out in front getting these 40 dudes to like, yeah, it's, it's rare sight no matter mm-hmm. where you are in the planet in 1705. So um, as they are engaging with the Mughals and having this conflict, this bloody conflict by the reservoir, the guru and his army who are trying to get out of there, they see that happen and they're like, oh, there's kind of chaos right here. So we're just going to shoot all our arrows at them and kind of give them some assistance that way. So they get some kind of ranged attack. Which actually ends up helping as well. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it doesn't go great for her and her 40 deserters. Um, by the end of the battle, the Mughals are withdrawing. Um, all 40 of her men die in battle. Um, the guru, the legend goes like the guru comes back to like hold the last person who is going to die from his wounds as he retracts the like resignation letter that they had said and he forgives them um whether that happened or not i feel is apocryphal but by all accounts the 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 damage to their relationship is wiped away by their sacrifice um mm-hmm. and my bago survives alleged she might have been injured that's not clear um and she you know becomes in high standing with the guru she asks to follow him on his way um and ends up being part of his entourage for the next part of his journey. Yeah, the 40 uh, deserters then become the, they are then collectively known as the 40 liberated ones, and they are martyrs and praised for their devotion to their faith. So this whole event, this battle occurs, and it is the first time 
that a woman in the history of the Punjab is seen and recorded as fighting on a battlefield. So that Mm -hmm. is her great honor in the name of Sikhism and in the name of her faith. Her spear and gun can still be found in a Sikh museum and her house, um, her original, oh, I'm sorry. Let's, let's go where she, she, she goes with the guru for a while and then she ends up going back to her home and it's unclear on if she gets married or has kids. I think there's one account where I saw that she, she did marry. Um, and she goes into like a long life of meditation and pursuing the guru's way of her religion and mm-hmm. practicing her faith in its full capacity. Um, and the site of her residence is now a Gurdwara, which is a house of worship for the Sikhs now. And it's still reserved for her and has her name on it. Yeah, so that's my bago of the Sikhs. And, oh God, hold on. Uh, There's a name for this battle, let me say it before Mm -hmm. we move on. Battle of Mukstar at Kidrana, mm. and the Battle of Mukstar. And there's um there's a lot of artwork about it. There's a lot of um, uh she's just she's revered in that way of like a fierce devotee to the religion, willing to stand up for what's right, willing to um take the underdog, you know, a David and Goliath kind of story. And so, given the like David Goliath nature of it, where mm. on the like history folklore myth spectrum does this live? i mean it's pretty it's pretty i think there's some stuff where it's like her shaming of them and her like rallying them is is the gilded part and then the guru mm-hmm. coming back and like mahan singh who had been wounded died as the guru took him into his arms and they were like i think that's a little gilded but by all accounts there were 40 men and one woman who took on this section of the mughal empire the mughals went away and did not end up killing the guru at that time. And like, it was successful. And then she was esteemed by the guru and went home. So like she existed the time in which she existed and this battle did occur. So yeah, historically accurate as far as that goes. That's Um, really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure there's more. So yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty accurate, but it's definitely like um, able to be distilled down into like a little folklore uh, bit, mm-hmm. but I, I've, I've always found Sikhism interesting. As a, I find that one and um, Quakers, mm-hmm. those are the two I got from World Religions. And I was like, those are interesting. I like those. Those are, mm. mm-hmm. yeah. If I were in the market, I would do more investigation of those. But I like the, I like the acts of service, and I like the community building. And mm-hmm. I was always thinking because there was a festival in New York by the Sikh community where they just make food for the community and they just give out food all the time to whoever shows up, whoever needs it. We just got amazing. I think that's one of the, that's what I've seen in practice. So like you actually, when you see the action, it just promotes better understanding of the religion. And what I appreciate about Sikhism is like, you always see action happening. Like they are doing Mm -hmm. things all the time. I don't know. I've been thinking about some, the way I started the story, just some of the nonsense that they have to deal with when they're doing everything I've seen from Sikhs has been positive and good. So for people just to hate them because of what they're wearing is so stupid and makes me sad. Deeply on brand for America. And I was like, well, yeah. And I was like, and I only really know about the male side of the faith, but I'm sure there's a female side. And so le- learning about they have a genderless God and, and women are 
equal and egalitarianly dealt with in their faith is interesting to me. Yeah. And I think something you said earlier, I, I think maybe before we started recording just about like the, the tendency to like love all people on Sunday and then Monday come around and like not really carry that into your rest, the rest of your life yeah. being like a, a problem. Yeah. And this, this seems like a, like a much more fully lived out version of that ideal mm. in some really yeah. cool ways. Like you have to care about everyone seven days a week, not yeah. just the one. Yeah. And you actually have to do it. Like loving is an is an action. Mm-hmm. It's not a it's not a feeling only. It's a you have to do yeah. things. I really I like that a lot. Loving is an action. I think yeah. that's a that's a that's a good thought to hold on to. Yeah, it's not just thinking it and feeling it. You have to. I mean, if that's your love language, we can get into that. <laughs> For some people, it's a love language, but one could also say all of the things in love languages are actions. You are saying things to other people to tell them you love them. You are doing things for other people. You are buying things for them. What are the other ones? Physical touch. You're touching them. You're asking to be touched and touching them. Your um, quality time. You're giving your time to another person. Like it's all verbs. You have to actually mm-hmm. do stuff. You can't just like hold it in my heart. You know, you go do something about it. Yeah. The heart is a muscle and it must be worked out. Or it atrophies. Um, okay, great. Hey, want to take a quick break? Yeah.
The phone in the bed is toxic. It can mm-hmm. be bad. It's really bad. Yeah. So I'm trying to to move away from that direction. Um, we'll see how it goes. I say I've I've said that pretty much like every time I've like gone to a new place is like I find a new place to put my phone and like create this is far enough from my bed that like and then I have to plug right it in. into charge. <laughs> yeah. You gotta. Yeah, I get those books right by the bed. And you, uh, what I think is the other thing is I'm I'm I have like four books I'm reading right now. Mm-hmm. And that's helping a lot too, where it's like yeah. I'm not reading one book because then when you go to read that one book and you don't really feel like it, it's, eh, you know. But if you have a couple that you're floating between, which is not typical for me, I don't know if that mm-hmm. is that typical for people to have multiple books. I think some people have like really strong feelings about it. Like I will generally have like a nonfiction and a fiction book. So similarly, depending on the mood I'm in, I'll grab mm-hmm. one or the mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know other people who are like I have to read one book at yeah. a time. I can't multitask. Yeah, the multi books is helping me, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a range of subjects. So there's some nonfiction, there's some like instructional stuff, and then there's um, fiction. And what I'm realizing is like I can't get into fiction right now. Like I want to mm-hmm. be, I want to like learn something and be informed about something. And like, oh, that's fascinating. That's the sensation I want from a book. Yeah. Whereas if it's like someone's emotional upheaval, I was like, I can't deal with you right now. I've got my own stuff. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> go on your journey with you. I'll see you on Christmas break or something when I mm-hmm. can delve into somebody else's emotional health. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anybody like somebody, anytime somebody has a choice in a novel, I'm like, I, I, no, I, I, I don't can't. care. No, you just, you're <laughs> going to do the bad thing for conflict reasons. And that makes a story and I'm not interested right now. Similar to TV where it's just like, if someone behaves badly on a TV show, I was like, there's enough of this. I don't need to see it right now. I don't yeah, need to I've... see conflict right now. I've really felt that like I've really I haven't really been able to start a new TV show because I just can't like invest myself in a new set of people making choices. I'm like, that's too much. You're asking too much of me right now. Isn't that weird? That's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, no, I've been. Where have I been? Oh, actually, no, I did start a new show. I started watching Community. Have oh, you that's ever a good choice. It? I'd watched it uh, back back in the day. when Oh, it was my God. Out. Did not even know. That was a thing. I tried to watch it a couple other times, and I think it just never hit me right. Or mm-hmm. I I don't know it. It's it feels well like, in an interesting yeah. way. It's it's like one of the like for me. I always think about like The Office. It's one of those things that like if you encounter it because everyone's like, oh my god, it's so good, you have to watch it. And you come to it, you're like, yeah, this is yeah. fine. But yeah. when you come to it in your own time, I think yeah. it really yeah. I'm I glad appreciate you're aged it. well. Well, I appre- well, I mean, it's aged well in the fact where I was like, I don't think you could do this now, like. <laughs> Pierce is a character. It's mm-hmm. I, I find it well. I find it interesting because I was like, could you write this now? And like the conceit is that everyone knows he's wrong and he's saying terrible things. So can you have that on TV anymore, or can you not even have somebody on ter- doing terrible things and saying awful things on that show? Yeah, I I think that's a good question. I I should go back and watch I, it. I haven't. I feel like they're always punching down at him, mm-hmm. and he's never. He's never punching anybody yeah. down. They're always like, you're awful, um, but we're going to be nice to you because we're good people. That, that's how it's reading to me. Uh, mm-hmm. But today, I don't know if you could do that. Where you have like, I, I don't know. It's it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. But they also lean into the, like, oh, what a crazy diverse group you all are. You know, I love mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. I love that there's more the, than. Yeah, the Dean character. Oh my God, love him. What a weird psycho. The Dean, yes, that peanut bar rap where he's the payday. Oh my god, I forgot. You gotta watch it. It's so good. And then every time they do a paintball episode, 
I've only watched, I think there's, how many seasons are there? Six? But yeah, I've only watched two, yeah. through season two. But I also love it. It's a 20-minute thing, shenanigans. And I also appreciate, like, it's real people in a really weird place. <laughs> so, like, the world is odd and mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. But the people in it make sense. And they're, like, connecting yeah, for and sure. having emotional growth. But then they have, like, a wild escapade of imagination i think that's the thing that i'm liking so much about it it's very imaginative and somebody clearly like Mm -hmm. goes there with some of their more outlandish episodes and i was like oh this is nice i enjoyed this a lot but it's like yeah silly silly weird (laughs) odd people i don't know it's been a nice little bright spot that i found recently yeah oh that feels like a good like a good place to be but if you watch it before you might want to watch it again yeah, I, I think that, that, and I, I've been rewatching a lot of shows again because the amount of energy it takes to invest in something I know about is they're going to take my Parks and Rec off. Netflix. I heard, and I am. Where is it going? Uh, NBC is trying to launch its <gasps> own streaming platform that you will have to separately deal with. I don't want that. Apparent, so apparently there will be a free option with ads, similar Ew. to like old school Hulu. Wait, was was Community on NBC? That's a good question. I don't actually know, but I, I if feel it's like going away, yes. I got I got a cram before it leaves. Um, yeah, NBC. Yeah, you might have to. You might have to do that. Well, I also I haven't gotten to the D and D episodes yet, and I'm very excited about those because I play D and D, and I want to see what they do with it because I bet it's fantastic. I I have some recollection that 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 is, those are some high points. Okay. Before we jump in, it's like I don't think in any way important to what we just talked about, but I was curious, so I googled it. I think the Mughals are an Islamic empire <gasps> in India. I'm so wrong. Are they really? I think so. I have like some vague recollection that like that was kind of a big deal. Like they the thing that in. I read was um, that they were all into the caste system, so that made me think that they were. Um... I think it's like they're Islamic and are pretty chill with other religions until like a certain point. So like the being chill with the caste system makes sense. And then oh I God. think it, at some I'm point. I'm so sorry. I didn't do enough research on them, clearly. I mean, like it makes it makes sense. Sunni I mean, Islam. You're totally mm-hmm. right. Oh, my uh, God. Terrible. But I think that that makes more sense because I'm, I'm Googling now the emperor whose name I'm not going to try to pronounce. Um, and I think he was sort of the one who started more forcefully pushing some Islamic policies, which would make sense then why he and the Mm. Sikhs would be fighting. Yeah, and here as well, so it says religion, this is just Wikipedia, so calm down, rigorous historians. Um, Religion, Sunni Islam from 1526 to 1857, and Din al-Hilil, 1582 to 1605. So there is like an overlap. And the secondary one goes away, but this one, Din al-Hilai, Divine faith propounded by the Mughal Empire Akbar in 1582 merged some elements of the religions of his empire and therefore reconciled differences that divided his subjects. The elements were primarily drawn from Islam and Hinduism, but some were also taken from Christianity, Jainism, and Zoroastrianism. Okay, so this is, yeah, Akbar, who Mm -hmm. tried to, I read a little bit about him, where he tried to meld it a little bit more so that there was less division. I'm so sorry. My bad. My bad. I got to read more about the Mughals. That's what I learned. 
Yeah, I had, I had a similar experience researching my episode this week where I mm-hmm. like was I like I did the thing where like I jumped in. I was trying to learn about the the woman I wanted to write about, and in doing so, had to open like eight thousand other tabs just because there was so much context I didn't know about. Yeah, and I think similarly, I'm just gonna give the highlights. But it's interesting. I mean, the thing I was really interested in sort of talking about the relationship between the gurus and the like divine figure in Sikhism. Yeah. Um, because the the lady I want to talk about today, it, one of the like big parts of her story is that she's a medium for um, an ancestral spirit. Um, and sort of li- lives in this like social, political, cultural world where there are these spirits um, who over like long stretches of history, like several hundred years reoccur like have relationships with mediums throughout history who serve as like a conduit between these spirits and the communities they're in uh, which is just like such a cool interesting concept to think about um and like don't know nearly enough about like that but like in ancient greece there's sort of that idea that like the oracles ha- would have relationships with a particular god and like if you wanted to talk to like apollo you would go to like one oracle. And if you wanted to talk to a different God, you'd go to a different oracle. So it seems like it's, it's a similar question, but I'm curious, like sort of how people who study this would think about like, what is that relation? How is that different necessarily from like the relationship these gurus would have with the divine versus like what a medium has with a spirit. And just like the crossover seems really interesting. Hmm. That is interesting. Mediums, huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's where we're heading, but I don't think it's the image of medium you have in your head. Okay, good. Great. Not like Victorian white woman holding a seance. In Not who I was thinking. I was thinking that Dum Dum John Edwards or whatever his name is that was on TV growing up all the time. Oh, I this is not I'm not familiar he with that. He was on Oprah or something. It's classic manipulation where he's like, Does mm-hmm. anybody have a relative with a name starts with M? It's like, Oh my god, I do. And then mm-hmm. Yeah, did they pass away? Yes. It's like that's not that's not really good. I mean, okay, um, taking advantage of vulnerable people. Yeah. Anytime um, you're doing it on TV, I'm like less inclined to believe you. I'm more inclined to believe like someone randomly coming up to you in a grocery store and being like, "So your grandpa chewed tobacco, right?" And then being like, "Whoa, I don't know." The second you like commercialize or, or monetize it, I, I get a little skeptical for sure. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty fair. I worked on a play at Actors, uh, the, um, the Thin Place, that was sort of all about how people do that and like how to make that work. And it's crazy because it's so easy to it's, people just believe you because you're preying on their insecurities. Yeah, it's very... Well, it's also easy to be like, I don't know. Have you ever watched the, the Hollywood medium kid? Mm-mm. Have you ever seen him? He's an interesting, he's an interesting cat. Um, and there will be moments where he'll like say something that's very specific and that's interesting. Um, but I'm always like, you could have Googled that easily. You could have looked at that person's obituary and you could have, you know. Um, but I do like the conceit, like he doesn't know who he's going to contact. He doesn't like know what connection the person has to them. So like it is, kind of, you would have to do like a big family tree to be like, oh, I bet it's grandma. Um, but sometimes who they want to talk to isn't who comes through. Fair. Okay. My issue is when they come through, they always are completely fine and want you to do the best you've ever done. And they're fine that you didn't make it. And they're totally happy that you're, 
you know what I mean? The like, great peace that comes from passing on, which mm-hmm. I'm not saying isn't true, but like you need, I don't know. It's not for me. Right. Like, I also, I, I would be the kind of person that was like, I do want to go to a medium, but I want to tell them absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And be like, just, mm-hmm. Because they go, does that mean anything to you? So that you go, yeah, we used to fish all the time. And he goes like, he remembers that you fished and it was amazing. And he'll validate the thing that you said rather than generate it himself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what gives me pause where it's just like, I'm seeing, I'm seeing the color red. Does that mean anything? And you go like, my grandma always wore a red dress. And she's like, she's wearing it right now. And it's like, it validates the narrative you are making rather than them giving you a narrative. So that's what gives me pause where I'm like, yes, it does mean a lot. And I won't say anything else to see if they can. That's the skepticism. I mm-hmm. Okay. So that's, that's interesting. So like, so we've got like TV mediums. We've got yeah. like women in parlors mediums. Uh, yeah. And we're not going to talk about either of them. Oh, we're going to do like <laughs> Fun segue a, for a, minute. <laughs> a totally different concept of like what it means to be a medium. Okay. Are ghosts still involved? Uh, ancestral spirits. We're going to call them. Um, okay. So not quite ghosts. And I think that like the distinction will make sense in a second. Um, But before we like get there, um, I had to do like a a refresh on my South African colonial history. Um, Oh, it's a fun time. Yeah. How, 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 how do you feel about South African colonial history? South Africans. We've talked about it this summer in another episode. You did a, you did a um, civil rights activist down there Mm -hmm. and a lot of Dutch nonsense, (laughs) a lot of English nonsense. Uh, What do I remember? What I think when I think of South African colonialism, the main line that comes through is like the numbers don't add up because it would always be like 90% of the population is black, 10% is white and the whites rule everything. So just out of numbers, it never made sense. Um, That's my overarching thing. Excuse me. Bless you. You're allergic to it, clearly. Uh, yes, that my allergy Colonial medications vibes. don't cover colonialism. Um, the things that pop in my brain is like Boer War, Afrikaans as a language is a is a relic of um, colonialism, mm-hmm. and apartheid is a is a manufacturing of caste systems, and you know, mm-hmm. it's it's it's. It's shocking to me that it ended in my lifetime. I'll put it that way. Yeah. And I think like the the thing I found that like I wasn't super aware of is sort of post basically any sort of post Boer Wars, which is like the 1880s, 1890s, yeah. early 1900s ish yeah. through like the sort of beginning of formal apartheid yeah. in the middle of the 20th century that like in between phase is sort of a big question yeah. mark for me. Um, yeah. And in particular, the sort of the relationship between South Africa is like we think of the modern country mm-hmm. and these other sort of British colonial well, adventures. So what was that? Boer War is like 1900 and you're thinking you don't really get online until 1950. That's sort of like that. Yeah. So in like between those two dates is like two world wars question. in which one of the major participants is the over mm-hmm. uh, the, the colonial ruler of that place. So yeah. they sort of take a back seat on um, domestic issues. I'll put it that way. That's a good euphemism. When there's a it. giant, when there's a giant war happening, twice. Yeah. Um, and so, like the, the sort of the area I want to focus in on today is technically not part of modern South Africa now. It's, it's actually in what is now Zimbabwe. Um, okay. 
But at the time we're talking about, which is like 1880s, 1890s, it's all part of that same colonial project. Um, sort of think of like Cecil Rhodes and Rhodesia. If, if the like, yeah, so problematic. not problematic in all the sorts of ways right? that it is. Isn't it like a relic of white supremacy now? Rhodes- yeah. So, the idea so Ro- of Rhodesia? Yeah. So Rhodesia is this, what is now Zimbabwe, but was sort of in the colonial period, it's this separately run British colony that when independence rolls around is like, actually, no, we'd rather hold on to the white supremacist state. And so there's like a 15 year guerrilla war as the like white supremacist state. I only know that because Dylan Root had pictures Mm -hmm. on his Facebook of the Rhodesian flag, which, hey, guys, that's a subtle sign that you need to know that you're talking to a Nazi. Yes. It's a white person with a Rhodesian flag. Maybe ask some questions if you're curious or get out of there. Yeah, so that's where we're starting. We're going to basically go back to the beginning of that moment, which mm-hmm. is, as you, one might imagine, given where where it ends up, not great. So we're going to end uh, on a high note, so we should find some stuff to talk about at the end of this so we're not bummed out. Uh, pretty much. Um, so, But I think it'll be, it'll be interesting to sort of tie the end of this conversation in with what we were just talking about in terms of just like how like history and folklore get sort of mixed as people use those stories to tell a particular narrative um and so in this case um the british are expanding north out of south africa into um what is now zimbabwe it's um cecil Rhodes and the british south african company are looking for land minerals particularly gold it's the sort of like quote-unquote scramble for africa period do i like, need to know about cecil Rhodes? Nope, i don't that's know much all- that's all you need to know. Okay. He ran the company. They're going to name it after him. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's so like, it's basically like the end of the 19th century and European powers are quote unquote scrambling to conquer as much of Africa as they can. Um, and so as they move north out of South Africa into this area that they call Mashana land, which is now sort of northern and eastern Zimbabwe, um, they're going to run into, not surprisingly, the people who live there and like have a thriving existing culture and society before the Europeans show up. Shocking. Uh, And in particular, it's a group called the Shana um, who are sort of a loose confederation of tribal groups that uh, mostly do cattle farming and are again, sort of loosely unified under a central King um, as of like the late 1700s. Uh, but the British encounter them at this period where they're, they don't quite have a central leader. They're trying to figure out who's in charge and into that sort of political turmoil steps this British company. And they're really eager to sort of play different groups off each other to help to their advantage. And this is a very sort of common practice in a lot of like colonial situations where a European power will originally ally with some of the indigenous groups to fight the other ones in sort of a divide and conquer situation. And so the sort of the interesting thing about the Shona in particular is that um, sort of one of the central tenets of their religious life um, is this idea, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this correctly, um, Mahanduro uh, or ancestral spirits. So this idea that there are these recurring spirits of sort of the ancestors who through mediums come back to advise and help the community. Um, Whether it's like the sort of big political questions or stuff as simple as like 
making it rain for the for the crops to grow um and that those people those mediums who have that relationship with the spirit are given a particular place of privilege in that community because their job is basically to communicate as the spirit to the community um and so and we're going to see in a second that like that will play a pretty big role in the shauna trying to fight back everything anything sort of it's it it can kind of depend like depending on which spirit you're talking to they have particular focuses again sort of similar to like the greek god concept where you have like someone who's concerned about the harvest someone who's concerned about like childbearing someone else about war someone else about like you know sort of any one of those issues in life um and so uh the spirit in particular that we're going to talk about um is is loosely associated with like rainmaking um but sort of is more broadly implicated in like the political questions of the community um sort of an interesting like double duty situation um and i didn't look as deeply but there are like there are other ancestral spirits who are who have relationships with mediums in the community at this particular moment who are a little bit more like focused on the like war and politics questions and so when the british arrive in like the 18 really 1890s they show up and they like start occupying land they like fight a few little conflicts here and there but generally are mostly interested in the like land gold end of things and so what they start doing is confiscating cattle imposing forced labor requirements on local communities and this is all in an attempt to sort of destroy the local economy as it exists labor let's dissect that term what forced labor like mm. like so slavery is illegal in the british empire at this time but there's this something else (laughs) in like so many words the word is illegal like the it's it's sort of similar there's a system in south america uh during spanish colonialism um where like a community had to give so many hours of labor to european landholders basically as a tax because they it's not a cash economy they don't like they couldn't pay taxes and money so you either pay taxes in things like cattle sheep or in hours like similar to like uh, serfdom. Yeah. it's not that dissimilar from slavery but it does have some sort of like meaningful structural differences in some ways um, and the idea is it's this interesting idea that I like hadn't really understood until fairly recently where it's not so much just about like exploiting them for resources, but it's really about sort of destroying the existing economy so that they, their only option is to work for British landowners as like wage earning, you know, employees in the same way that Maybe like, if they want to give you a wage, what, what, what causes them to want to give you a wage if there's no competition of economy? Well, that's exactly it. It's not, there's an, this is no way an equal relationship, employer, no. employee. You don't have a union. Yeah, so do you want to come over here and get our dollars? Well, not if we're making our own dollars. Yeah, so we're just going to blow that up so you only take our loony dollars that only make sense in Looneyville. And mm-hmm. then. Yeah, and it's, so it's, it's part of this big project to like oh bring God. all of these other parts of the world into contact with like a European dominated 
global economy with the idea being that like you're not coming in and you're like oh cool and you're gonna like run a factory and like be a business owner and like do all of these like good things and capitalism will be good for you it's like we need you to buy our stuff and we need you to work for us and the only way we can get you to do both of those things is if we destroy the economy that is already providing you your needs and replace it with this economy where we provide you your needs and you pay us for it uh so Uh, so this is this is where we are in the 1890s let's go on an economic principle for a minute but like is it maybe i'm just like too much of an optimist but like i one of my least favorite things about learning about um economic structures and stuff is like with competition i i think i think people do enjoy competition on like a fundamental level like it is fun to to raise yourself higher to meet the demand of the field you're in, right? So I think of like two rival companies and like someone comes out with this innovate causes innovation, causes growth, causes um, the market to be this like active thing, right? Just talking about broad capitalist concepts. Where I have an issue is when those competitions and those vibes become destructive to the other and degrade the entirety. Like it's seen as like, yeah, the malicious, the maliciousness that can come out from people's baser fears makes me so mad. Because if you guys just focus on your, on your um, productive, innovative stuff, you could thrive together. But instead, you must take down the other person, and then everyone suffers because the best idea isn't there. Because you're too busy about cutting the legs off of someone rather than making your own shoes higher. I don't know. That's a bad analogy. But No, I think that's actually a really, that's a really powerful analogy in part because like there's this, obviously the history in the Belgian Congo where like if you didn't collect enough rubber for your rubber quota, they would literally cut off parts of your body. Oh um, my God. Um, so that's in fact perhaps a little. So then no one has those. legs and you have no rubber. If you're, if you're maiming everybody that gets you the rubber, then they can't get you the rubber and you're, you killed your workforce. What are you doing? What are you doing? Like on the fun, like let's let's rage about the pandemic for a second. On a fundamental level, you're killing all the poor people that are making you money. Like let's do it in that kind of awful way. If all of the poor people are dying, no one can make you the stuff you need. So you should care about the poor people dying. If it's if you operate from a selfish viewpoint and you need all your things to live and you need to feel in charge and you need to subjugate all these people then you should fundamentally care if you obliterate all of them <laughs> through disease. How are you going to get all the stuff you want? I, you know, that kind of level of like, but they don't care. And that, that implies a lot of thought about how things work and who is in charge. And you have to actually care about people. Okay, it's fine. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think the, the, the sort of one thing I want to talk a little bit more about is this... <laughs> Before we get into the story, I we I promise we'll we'll talk about a lady. Shortly. <laughs> yeah, I keep forgetting. <laughs> Sorry, good. Uh, but so there's there's uh, this idea um, in this book called Empire of Cotton by Sven Becker called War Capitalism, uh, which I think is sort of really helpful in thinking about what's going on at this point in Africa and sort of on the the edges of imperial powers as they expand into new areas. And it's this idea that like sort of as, as you were saying about like rather than the like constructive competition where like people try to be better mm-hmm. it's more it's more about like oh i need things and the best way for me to take them is violently from this other person because like i because in this in this particular part of the world i don't have to play by the rules and like if we were back in london or new york 
I would have to play by the rules. I couldn't just show up with a guy with a group of guys and guns and like take everything in your warehouse. But because we're in a particular place, i.e. like the southern tip of Africa, I can actually just roll up with a group of guys with guns and start taking things from you. And that's okay. And that is, in fact, central to how global capitalism works at this point. Like you can't separate like the industrialization that's happening in Europe and the Americas from guys with guns in Asia and in Africa showing up and taking things in a way that would be horrifically illegal in Europe, but is totally fine to do here because we're in a different place. No one is watching, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, And so that's sort of exactly what's happening at this moment in this area. And as your anger alludes to, uh, the people from whom things are being taken Hmm. tend not to be super jazzed when a bunch of white dudes with guns show up and start doing that. Um, it's perhaps unsurprising that like if someone's shown up and s- taking your stuff from you uh, and, you know, killing you or like imposing these punishments on you for not giving up your stuff, um, you might not be s- super <laughs> excited about that for some reason. And that is, in fact, what is going to happen here. So I think now's a good time to meet our lady. She has uh, sort of two names. Uh one is relating to her relationship with the spirit for whom she's a medium. So that's sort of how that ties back in. Um, but she's born um, Charwe Nayakasikana. Um, she's sort of a sort of member of this larger royal family who in the 1700s unifies the Shona tribes in one kingdom and is now one of the people who like has a powerful political role in the kingdom as it stands now but that doesn't actually have a central king and so she is one of those figures but isn't like super in charge and the spirit she's associated with um is named nahanda and so the sort of interesting thing is like she has these sort of dual roles it's like her political role which comes from the fact that she like is a member of this royal family and then there's the like more religious role that comes from being possessed by the spirit um and they overlap and sort of connect when it comes to like fighting the British. So she's like, I'll be honest with you, Michael. I'm just thinking mm-hmm. about how we've elected a dictator. And I'm just thinking that through. <laughs> I'm just like, uh, just all of the tendencies that I'm, yeah, I'm just thinking about how fragile our election process is. Okay. Sorry. I'm, 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 uh, yeah, I'm back with you. I'm sorry. I'm so <laughs> okay. scared. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel like I should have picked something. I mean, there's there's some there's some positive stuff here, but it's it's not gonna be our most uplifting. Listen, this is where we live, and this is history. You can't change it. We just have to learn from it and and take it with us. You know. So okay. she's like in her mid thirties at this point in the eighteen nineties. Um, she has been possessed by the spirit Nahanda for about ten years or so. So sort of has mm-hmm. this ongoing relationship with this ancestral spirit. For 10 years, she's been? For about 10 years. Okay. Um, so it's sort of this long-standing at this point arrangement. There's this political upheaval as the community is trying to figure out, like, who the king is going to be, who's going to, like, run all of them. And that's a public thing to her community. Yeah. They all know that she has this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when the British roll up and they're, like, sort of trying to figure out how to deal with that, it's hard to have a unified response to it because each one of the sort of people jockeying for position is pretty happy to temporarily ally with the British in order to get more power, which is just like, 
makes sense in that context. Yeah. Um, And the British, of course, are encouraging that because it makes it easier to control the region. So we're in like 1896. Great year. It's March. And the tribes in the area are pretty fed up with the taxes and having their cattle confiscated and these forced labor requirements from the British, as one might expect. Yeah, and so sounds about right. The Shona's neighboring tribe, which are the Nebele, I, I think, um, sort of rise in armed opposition to the British. Um, and it actually goes pretty well for them uh, for the first couple of months, in part because the British are very spread out. There's not a lot of them. Um, and so they are able to score some early victories. And so as part of that, um, Nayakasakana and these other local leaders, some of whom are also mediums for these different spirits, sort of gather and they decide that they're going to join the conflict against the British. Um, and so she's one of these leaders who decides that, like, this is the moment to do this and goes back to, like, her particular community and sort of organizes them to start attacking British farms, British mines, the sort of, like, colonial presence in their area. Um, and, like, it actually goes, I want to say, like, surprisingly well in the first couple of weeks. Um, British are kind of taken by surprise. And so the Shona are able to um, capture a pretty, you know, large number of settlements or farms or mines. They attack white settlers. Um, and in June, they actually capture um, a man named H.H. Pollard, who is the British native commissioner, which means he's the government official responsible for extracting taxes and labor from the indigenous communities in the area. And they get him? They they get him? They, they capture they, him? They capture him um, and execute him. Ooh. He was doing his job well then, for sure. Yeah, they not big fans. Um, and so th- at the, by this point, it's sort of the late summer... People in South Africa and in the southern parts of um, Mashana land, the British have sort of like, okay, this is a problem. We need to go deal with it. Um, and so in August, they start sort of pushing back against the Shona. Um, and at this point, also, there's these rumors among the Europeans about this witch who is leading the army against them. That is a hot um, topic word for white Europeans. It is. It is, and I feel like we probably have talked about witches at some point on this podcast. And we should do a deep will. Halloweeny dive on witches, though, don't you think? We should, and there's some great until we do that some dig history podcasts about the history of witchcraft, and mm-hmm. it's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, witch is a loaded term, and it's obviously it's in no way capturing the like actual religious significance of her role as a medium, because uh, unsurprisingly, the British and the Europeans aren't particularly interested in capturing that nuance. They're just kind of like, they're, they're freaked out about this thing they don't understand. And it's a very effective tool for like, yeah, the second you humanize the, the, per- the people you're trying to oppress, you're kind of at a disadvantage for your goal. Because mm-hmm. then you actually care about them as people. But if you keep them as not people and witches and tools of the devil, uh, really easy to subjugate and uh, I don't know, oppress them. Yeah. So, uh, so that's where we're at. Uh, the British think they're fighting against uh, led by a witch. Um, and unsurprisingly, like when you're fighting a witch, you're not super interested in like, you want to get the witch. That's the the goal. Are men mediums in this culture? Yes. Okay. Would they be called witches? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know. I only saw the witch reference in regards to her. Um, and it'll, it will be kind of interesting, like 
And we'll it's, get after the fact, but like there are some interesting gendered things that will happen yes. in a hot sack. <laughs> They're already happening. Well, we got to go take care of this. Why? Well, they didn't do what we told them to. And also, oh, I'm not selling you on it. There's a witch over there. Oh, burner. <laughs> it's like, hmm, what word will work? Let me think about this. She's a witch, though. Oh, ooh, we got to take care of that because I don't understand it. Mm. You're not wrong. Cool. Ironically, also, they have, I mean, just, oh, God. I love, I love patriarchy in the Victorian age. Because they're all led by a tiny woman, and yet it's the most patriarchal, weird society. It's yeah. Just, it's bizarre to me. The second they just throw that out, like, a woman can't do that. It's like, she's literally running your country, and there's this pervasive nonsense occurring simultaneously. Where it's like, she can do that, but not all of these other things that we want. I, mm-hmm. Wild. Yeah. Wild. It is a bonkers <gasps> time to be alive. <gasps> bonkers okay cool and so in sort of in response to the witch who's leading this army who's actually doing a pretty good job of like beating them back um the british send military forces north um Nayakasakane is sort of forced to flee and spends about a year hiding from british forces and their allies trying to like keep her her group together and sort of escape getting captured um unfortunately it's like she gets captured um, in November 1897, um, the sources are a little unclear whether she was like traveling home and someone sold her out or if she intentionally surrendered as an effort to avoid further conflict. Um, but either way, um, she gets captured and taken to Salisbury, uh, not in England, but like the, this town um, in the, this European town in the territory to be tried. Uh, and it's sort of an interesting moment in British colonial history because sort of prior to this point, if Native people were doing something you didn't like, just killed them. Uh, because that's what you did. And there weren't, there wasn't really a cost to doing that other than like the deep moral and ethical implications that we would think about it now. But at that time, like you could do that. Uh, but this is sort of starting to be the point where like, you can't really do that. You have to come up at least with the pretext of it being sort of a fair judicial system mm-hmm. uh, because some people back home wouldn't be super happy with the sort of like extra judicial executing of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the sort of the beginning of a PR problem. Um, and so rather than just summarily executing her and these other leaders that they've captured, they put them on trial. And the sort of the second interesting thing about that is like, they're not being tried for rebellion or sedition or like any of the stuff related to this uprising. Um mm-hmm. In part, because there's this legal question of, like, can you really try people who don't, like, they're not technically part of the British Empire at this point. Like, they're not subjects of the Queen. Um, So you can't try them for crimes in that context because, like, you can't can't be treasonous against a state you don't belong to. Um, So instead, they try them for really specific crimes, like in um, Nayakasakani's case, for murdering the British official. and so it, it turns from what could just be this, like, sort of show trial about the rebellion, quote unquote, to, like, this actual really specific legal case about whether or not, like, she told someone to go kill the man, whether she killed the man, like, what is her responsibility in that? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, the the third interesting point is, like, none of that matters. Like, of course, they're going to execute her for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other 
people who've been captured who either escape or in converting to Christianity or in sort of serving as witnesses against other defendants are able to get less harsh punishments or able to sort of escape punishment altogether. Um, And that's not an option for her, um, in part because it's not given to her, um, and in part, too, because she decides that that's not the path she's going to pursue. And so even though there's not a lot of direct evidence linking her to the murder, um, there's some witnesses who say she told someone to go kill him. Um, There's the her relative um, who actually supposedly did kill him. And he gets up and says, like, she told me to and I was afraid because she was a witch. Um, or like a, a medium that she would be able to punish me if I didn't. Um, there's also some witnesses who say like, she like there, like there was no reason to be afraid of her. Like if he went and did it, he did it of his own free will. Um, but where the court lands is that she's of course responsible for the murder. Did the guy that murdered somebody get, he dies in jail before, um, any sort of judicial punishment gets handed down. Okay. Um, but some of the other mediums who are getting charged, sort of renounce their religion um, and convert to Christianity in an attempt to get leniency. Um, And she refuses to do that. Um, And so because of that refusal and because of the people testifying against her and the evidence, um, she is uh, convicted and hanged in March of 1898. Um, And interestingly, like there, the tree she supposedly hanged at um, still exists. It's in the capital in Zimbabwe. Um, and there was actually sort of a big story a little while back because it got hit by a van. Like, the, so the tree got sort of damaged. It got hit by a what? A van. Just oh, like someone was driving right. and like ran into it. Um, mm. But it sort of leaves us in this interesting place where, so she she pretty quickly becomes this symbol of sort of Zimbabwean or what will become Zimbabwean nationalism, anti-colonialism because of her resistance to British rule. Um, yeah. and so there's this, this first conflict in the 1890s. There'll be another conflict a little bit later. And then um, sort of in the independence period in the fifties and sixties, this big guerrilla war against the white nationalist government of Rhodesia. Mm-hmm. Um, and in these conflicts, she is sort of used as a symbol of resistance. And again, the sort of the narrative works really nicely in that, like she is this medium in this traditional religion. So it's yeah, anti-cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's all, it, it, it checks a lot of boxes. And so in a way there's the, like the history of it and then the folklore mythology of it that sort of mm-hmm. comes after the fact. Um, and that becomes kind of like interestingly problematic um, post independence, because obviously Robert Mugabe ends up running Zimbabwe like sort of a ruthless authoritarian figure. And so the government's co-opting of her story is again, used as a tool to sort of buttress their own regime. But obviously like this anti-colonial figure serves just as well as like an anti-authoritarian figure. And so that interesting battle about what is her legacy and like who has the right to use that. And appropriation and all of those kinds of subjects. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's, it's, it's particularly interesting because like as we're talking about statues and commemoration in the U.S. right now, there's actually an effort um, like the, the National Archives of Zimbabwe have actually commissioned a statue of her to be put up in the, um, in the Capitol. And so they're having this interesting conversation about like, is this an appropriate thing to be doing at this moment? Again, trying to like the, who who controls her legacy? And oh, because she's so associated with that author author authoritarian person. 
it's so it's interesting, right? So Robert Mugabe is sort of forced from power a couple of years ago, and the country is still sort of reckoning with what it means to like move on from that. And like the the political party he ran is still in power, but he's not mm. in power anymore. And it's navigating right. like, what does that mean? And so it's a particularly contested moment in terms of like national yeah. identity and those questions. Yeah. Um, and also like the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic, like the government spending resources on that has been a, a topic of conversation, at least in the, the article I was reading. Um, but at the same time, also, right, she is this this female figure, one could like argue in some ways feminist figure, um, who also is sort of, again, tied to those traditional religions and those other questions about... Is like, that your phone? It is my phone. Give me one okay. second. It's all right. I could just hear it. But yeah, if, if, if like <laughs> the OG authoritarian person we cite is Hitler, so I won't do that. But if you were like, if Stalin was like, oh, my favorite heroine of Russian folklore is so-and-so, I feel like the modern... Well, I don't know. Maybe they have a lot in common with Stalin. I don't know if there's somebody that doesn't super agree with him. But um, yeah, the kind of ramifications of like adhering to like this messed up person's idea of a hero could be seen incorrectly rather than like there's a consensus. It doesn't feel like there's a consensus when there's one kind of leader saying what the what the rules are. So, yeah, picking a cultural hero and somebody that we all agree is I feel like that's sort of what the Confederates wanted us to do with Lee of like, wasn't he great? And for a long time it worked of like, yeah, what honor and wonderful. And then like you actually read about his slaveholding history and maybe you're like, I don't need any schools named after him. I'm good. Maybe less things named after people that were born before 2020. <laughs> maybe we just say like no more names on things. Maybe that, maybe that. Um, Cause there's going to be some problems somewhere, but I don't know. There's, you know, I've also enjoyed a lot of memorials I've gone to. Like I, I, I've seen the positive effect of like what a memorial can do in a, in a place of understanding the achievements of somebody. But it was, I was, it was like interesting to sort of hear her in context with your, with your lady about just sort of how, how there is, there is like a, there's a documented history there. Yeah. And also then this relationship with sort of like the story in a bigger context. What struck me too is like, I was thinking about nanny queen, queen nanny from a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. And, um, I didn't find any controversy about getting her memorial stationed or anything like that, but I also don't think she's been appropriated in that way. And she's much more of a literal person. She's more of a, there's a lot not known. So it's more of a vague uh, timeline and it's more about the movement that occurred and the history that she lived in rather than her specifically. Yeah. At least that was my feeling about it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Not about mediums the way I thought of mediums. No, very different kind of medium. Uh, but it was very, yeah, it was, like, I was really excited to get to learn about her in part because, you know, my yeah. picture of mediums is very, like, mm-hmm. in the parlor with the Ouija board. Yeah, um, so can I have, here's here's an uplifting note that has nothing to do with what we've just talked about. Uh, so it's, a, I feel like it's a good segue because it's kind of ghost adjacent. So I was walking with my friend, we were walking the dogs, and we were trying to have conversations that weren't about reality because reality sucks right now so we did a hypothetical about zombie apocalypse what would you take with you how would you survive um you know strategizing in that way and we were both like oh god we were at a disadvantage because we both have dogs and if you have a dog in a in a apocalyptic scenario you're you're weighed down you're concerned about somebody else's welfare which is problematic when it's a kill or be killed world um because i'm going down if that dog goes down like let's mm-hmm. be real i love her so much um uh, 
So I was like, oh, I'd have to get like a baby Bjorn <laughs> to carry her around with me so she wasn't have to be on a leash because she'd just want to go sniff everything. But then that segued into, well, would the dog be an asset? And my friend <laughs> said the weirdest thing, which we didn't get to dive into, but she was just like, well, a dog can smell ghosts and will let you know, but I don't know if they could smell zombies or like alert you to zombies. So that would be a disadvantage. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> she was That's like, well, fascinating. Yeah, like the dog will let you know when there's a spirit there, but not necessarily a zombie. And I was like, okay, let's break this down. You're telling me that the dog has some kind of, awareness of supernatural things a medium if you will in the modern mm-hmm. sense and it has told you that they exist and you've seen that and she, you could tell it was like not literally believing all of those things but sort of bringing it up i was like and you can you're telling me that the dog would also not be able to smell a corpse walking towards you and maybe tell you that something's up do you know what i mean like there's a I'm, I'm inclined to believe the dog's sense of smell is going to make them a little more alerted to a walking body that smells terrible, pushing yeah. leaves around, rather than a... Go- I, I don't know. I mean, my understanding of zombie lore is that dogs are, in fact, a really effective tool for identifying zombies because they can smell them. And like, I would they alert think so. to it. And like, they there's would be whole- like, mm, you know, the little perky, there's something going on over there. Yeah, like... In World War Z, there's this whole entire plot line where, like, you use sniffer dogs to identify if people have been bit by zombies but haven't turned into zombies yet. That yes, that tracks. Point. If they can smell cancer cells on your breath, they can surely let you know when a horde is coming through the forest. Right. So but this, the fact that she was like, nope, they do that for ghosts. And I was and like, like that's, hold I think on. that's the fascinating thing, right? Like, ghost sensing dogs. Okay. I'm interested. But my no. whole sense of, of ghosts <laughs> is they're, they're not corporeal. Like, there's nothing to smell because they aren't in our world. This gets into a whole conversation we've had before about my belief in ghosts or not and her belief in ghosts or not. And her, (laughs) it was a wild ride in a hypothetical conversation. Let me tell you. Um, Ghosts, can they, can they be smelled by dogs or not? It brought up a whole lot of things. Um, But then, yeah. And then it turned into like, would a dog, (laughs) Would a dog identify a zombie as a really weird smelling human or mm. would they perceive them as a threat? You know, I feel like the and I think that depends on the dog, of... but I think my dog in particular would be like, Ooh, another person to pet me. And then it, that would be the end of you. For us. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, unless yeah, that's she saw question. them, like unless she saw them physically attack, you know, and then mm-hmm. equated the smell to like danger. But initially we would have to, we would have to work that out. Yeah. I think that, that's an interesting question because I always, I always heard the, like the, the good and bad part of having a dog is right. Like my sense is like they'll like bark if a zombie's nearby, which is mm-hmm. great because it lets you know there's a zombie nearby, but also lets the zombie know that you're, you're nearby. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I would say again with sort of World War Z being my touchstone, there's this great. I don't know if, you, if you've read the World War Z book as opposed to seeing the movie. I have not. I think you'd love it because it's. I, I read it early pandemic because I was like I need something that is like equally traumatic but in a totally different not gonna happen way just to help me like refocus but it's also written by max brooks, brooks. um i do know that so it is kind of fun in some ways but there's this whole chapter about 
like the use of dog, like working dogs in a zombie apocalypse. So some of them were like mm-hmm. attack dogs to take down zombies. Others would like rescue humans who were trapped by zombies or track yeah. zombies. And it's just great because it's just like all these cute stories about dogs being yeah. amazing, but being amazing in the context of like surrounded by like a zombie horde. Yeah, you, the utilization of animals for human excellence is, is <clears throat> I think, really interesting. Um, and the range of what they can do has just been starting to kind of unfold. Like all of the medical stuff that we're going to start putting them involved or, you know, cancer detection and, and mental health support and um, service animals for, for people who can't see or hear or need, need particular assistance. I mean, it's, it's so cool to, I don't know, use the animal kingdom in that way of like, Mm -hmm. Kind of a tool, you know, it's such a human thing of like, how can I use this to better, better my situation? But like at the yeah. same time, the dog gets so much out of it. And like, we've also made animals to be like the most, we're like, well, this creature needs to be incredibly giving, incredibly loving and people pleasing. That's the quality. So we're going to make that happen mm-hmm. through breeding. So then we create this wonderful light giving love machine that's just like i freaking love you and you're amazing and that the like ramifications of that is just for the average person you just benefit greatly i don't know it's 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 interesting but zombie apocalypse yeah yeah would your cat be an asset or not i don't think my cat would be an asset i think no my understanding of how fluffy would deal with a zombie apocalypse is she'd be like oh this is a problem and you guys are gonna weigh me down so bye (laughs) i'm out see (laughs) you see you out there in the I'd like one more wet food packet to tide me over, but then I'm going to be fine. And you guys are so totally screwed. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys know this, but I can just scale a tree in like no time. So yeah, I'm good. Um, Nice. Well, I like that zombie apocalypse is sort of the uplifting note to leave us for this episode. It's fun to get into like weird nonsense. Yeah, uh, no, totally. The conversations. It's like the conversations you used to have at a bar when you could be around people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I think. I miss exactly those kinds it. of conversations of like, let's talk about nonsense. Yeah. Um, oh boy. And it's sort of a it's a way to make my brain be creative in a different way. Yeah. Totally. Um, and like, what is the logic of that? I don't know. Would you survive? What would you take from your kitchen? Would you take anything? I think the thing I landed on is the same thing I would deal with of like a human problem, which is like I'm going to take bear spray because I assumed that zombies would still need their senses to track you, right? There's some kind of like smelling or seeing or hearing of their prey. So if you destabilize those, you're still in the clear. And then I don't have to stabby stab and I don't have to shoot and I don't have to like, it's relatively quiet, incapacitate the zombie and run away. That's mm-hmm. where I live. And do it from a distance because bear spray, that's like a good 10 footer, you know? That's, yeah, that's interesting. In the area and then run. So anyway. Highly recommend. <laughs> that way you're not like trying to be like, oh, I got to get a golf club or like a, I all of a sudden have to be okay with stabbing people, which is the world that I don't think I would be ready for initially at the start of an apocalypse. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of like emotional journey you have to go on. Yeah, for sure. This is, yeah, this is fascinating. I haven't thought about this in that much detail in a long time. I did have to write the the other day. So yeah. uh, one of my like final exams in college was having to write a short story about what I would do if the zombie apocalypse happened. That was a good final. I think I did well on that. Yeah. It, it involved like breaking into the theater and stealing some some tools. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. Because nobody thinks about tools being in there. 
Yeah, but, exactly. I yeah. think, yeah. And so I still, I live close enough to a, a university with a performing arts center that I think if a zombie apocalypse happened, I think my first move would be like, go to the theater, break in and grab some, some tools of some sort. Nice. And then go from there. On that note. On that note about the the apocalypse. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Missing History. If you have suggestions for people you think we should profile, email us at missinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with us at Miss History Pod on Twitter or Missing History on Instagram. We're also on Facebook at Missing History. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Jen, Catherine, and Marion for all their help on this project. And thank you for listening to Missing History. Missing History.